welcome to the Last Drop Africa podcast. My name is Bella Twine, and of course, this podcast is brought to you by Africa No Filter and the MasterCard Foundation. Today, we are here in the presence of some of the amazing journalists this country has so far. And we are moving away from manufacturing and people who are doing work around climate change. But these individuals talk about climate change. They put the stories out there. They have journalists and a multitude of people who are championing solutions to climate change. And I will let them introduce themselves, first with Annika and then with Fred. Hi, my name is Annika McGuinness. I'm the co-founder of InfoNile. I am from the U.S. and I'm a journalist. I've been living in Uganda since 2016. Thank you for having us. Yeah, my name is Frederick Mujira. I founded Water Journalists Africa. Water Journalists Africa is a network of journalists in Africa who report about water. We are over 1,000 journalists. Eh? Uh, that was 2011. So under Water Journalists Africa, we have different projects. We have InfoNile, InfoNile which Anik and I co-founded. Uh, we have another project called the Big Gorilla Story Project, which has uh, shifted down to reporting on all apps, and now we call it the Apps Reporting Project. Yeah, so uh, we have two projects so far under Water Journalists Africa. Uh, we'll later tell you how, what we do under these projects. Thank you so much. So. I'm interested in the story of how you two get to meet and how you two actually sit down and say, okay, what a journalist Africa and now InfoNile becoming a project. So you, you came to Uganda 2016, yeah, and probably on another mission, but then this happened. So how does that happen, Anika? Yeah, um, so I was a journalist in the US. I studied journalism and I was working with Reuters in Washington, D.C. Um, and I also had some experience working with the Earth Journalism Network, which is a media development organization focusing on environmental reporting uh, before I came to Uganda. So I had some experience working on the Info Amazonia platform, which is a geojournalism platform. Geojournalism brings together stories with data and maps, um, trying to really humanize a lot of the scientific data in cross-border regions like river basins. So when I came to Uganda uh, on a Global Health Corps fellowship, I was working for Reach Out in Buya. It's an HIV AIDS community organization and doing communications. But Earth Journalism Network linked me to Fred uh, because he had been a fellow in one of their programs. So when I met with Fred, he told me about Water Journalists Africa, the network of water journalists that they had, and one of the research projects that he was involved in, which was supported by IHE Delft. Um, this is the Institute of Water Education in, the, in the, the Netherlands. And they were looking at the impact of the media in fueling either conflict or cooperation in the Nile River Basin. And I, I believe they were looking at the countries of Egypt, Ethiopia, Sudan, and Uganda. Uh, as case studies and analyzing the media reports to find out how is the media really reporting on water resources in this you know, shared river basin where everyone is depending on the same resource. So it found that these media reports were actually fueling more of the conflict narratives, like the impact that they were having was more to create tensions, to, uh, to fuel nationalistic narratives and really not um, not so much of cooperation between countries. And one of the things that, that they were lacking were, was communication of data and science, because most of the science shows that this resource can actually be shared. 
And in a time of climate change, we have increasing populations, we have more water scarcity. It's really important that the countries actually figure out how to share the resource in a sustainable manner. Um, but instead, we have cases like now the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam that is still fueling tensions between Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sudan. Um, yet, science shows that if this dam is managed in a cooperative way, it could actually even benefit Egypt in times of drought. So that's why we founded InfoNile, since I had the experience with geojournalism and Fred had the network of water journalists. We felt like uh, we could start a geojournalism platform for this region where we intend to communicate the science and the data, um, but in a very like humanistic way. Uh, that people can relate to and which will help to increase the cooperation rather than the conflict um, around the Nile River. But yeah, since yeah. then, I would just yeah. uh, note that we have kind of expanded just from covering the water resources and the sharing of the Nile. We realized uh, in a time of climate change and biodiversity loss and all of the environmental problems that the world is facing, most of these problems are cross-border. So we can look at them uh, in this region, specifically the Nile Basin, and see how journalists can connect with scientists, how they can connect with each other across borders uh, and bring out more factual and collaborative stories. Yeah, yeah thank you. And that was 2016. Yeah, so when we met 2016, uh, towards the end of 2016, as we went to 2017, we formed InfoNile. And since then, we've done some amazing work. So when it comes to cooperation with other journalists and working together to make sure that you know you're informing the public but also doing something to combat climate change how has that been for you collaborating with other journalists across the region what good things have you found in this journey you do realize most media houses in the region want to compete instead of collaborating eh? yeah so we came in to help bring together journalists and media houses to collaborate. Because we are working on a transboundary resource, River Nile is a transboundary resource. It's not only in Uganda, it goes to different countries, 11 countries that are in the Nile Basin. So we thought it was very important for us to come in and bring journalists together. That's part of what we're doing. So it takes like 20%. Eh? So we are bringing journalists together. We want them to work together. And it has so many benefits. One of them, when they work together, they bring together knowledge and work on different issues in the region. But also bringing together funding. Okay? Funding is extremely a, a big challenge in the region. Media houses don't have money. They cannot take on big projects, investigative projects. But when they come together, they kind of bring together funds. Eh? and are able to work on different projects. But also, remember, there are countries you cannot go to. And if you have someone there, you can work with them. Eh? It's a big region. So then we encourage journalists to work together. We give them funds. We you know, support them. We train them to make sure they work together and work on this transboundary resource. Yeah, I think what I can add, so, uh, so one of the programs that we have under Infernal is the Story Grant Program. That is our one of our core programs. And we, in the recent years, we have been encouraging the journalists to apply in collaboration, so not providing a grant like to one journalist, but to several of them working together. And like Fred said, sometimes this can be a cross-border. Mm. For example, um, 
Just to give a specific example, we funded journalists reporting on the Rusumo hydropower project, and that affects Rwanda, Burundi, and Tanzania. So we had a journalist from each country working together, sharing information, finding out how this project was affecting the communities, even some of the pollution that the project was causing, really going beyond the nationalistic kinds of official narratives. And they were able to produce a really, really nice investigative story, which was then published in all of the countries. And then another example, uh, we had another project during COVID looking at water scarcity during COVID. Of course, there was a big focus on wash, like access to water for sanitation, for hand washing and all of that. So water really came into focus during COVID. So we asked the journalists to work in pairs, a rural journalist working for a radio station, maybe in a rural community, reporting in a local language, working with a national reporter, either for TV or newspaper. So even though they were in the same country, these are reporters from completely different communities, different audiences, different languages, but working on the same story. And then it gets published and distributed to different audiences. Another example we can give here that we did it's a project around uh, you know, land grabbing in the region. We were able to bring 12 journalists from the region to investigate land grabs in their countries. Eh? So we put together a very big project that has been winning awards. It's called Suck to Dry. We looked at what happens when foreign investors come from different countries and come to the Nile Basin, grab land, what happens with mm. the profits so we realized that the profits, they take them to their countries, they displace communities in the Nile Basin because they want to establish different projects. If, for example, you can look at Ethiopia. We found that foreign investors come from Europe, come to Ethiopia, grow flowers, and ship the flowers back to Europe and take with them the profits and leave communities suffering. It's almost the same situation that we saw in parts of, uh, of Uganda, that we saw in, in Egypt, that we saw in Sudan. For example, in Egypt, foreign investors come from the Middle East, come grow animal feed, alfalfa, and ship it back to Middle East, and take with them the profits, and leave communities in, in Egypt suffering, because they have no land. And you know when you don't have land, it means a lot. You cannot take your kids to school, you cannot grow what to eat, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. So how we do our collaboration is both at like the story grant level, but also at the end of the, the story grant cycle. We bring stories together, like mm. Fred was saying. So these are stories which have been published in the journalist media houses, and then we produce a long-form investigative cross-border story, mm. which really brings out the issue, whether it's about suck drive, about land grabbing, we've also done about lake degradation, wildlife trafficking, and other transboundary and cross-border issues. So it brings together that those stories into one long cross-border story mm. with a lot of data analysis. So we try to get the data from every country, which we can bring together into visualizations and maps, and then um, explain through the local mm. reporting. For, for, for all these projects, eh, we do geojournalism. Like we told you at the beginning, mm. geojournalism, we tell stories using data generated by earth sciences. Eh? So then we are able to have different techniques. For example, like Nika told you, we use data, we do visualization, we use maps, we use, uh, um, we use drone imagery, and you know, then to, we spice these stories because we want to bring them in a different form. Eh? 
kind of defamiliarizing the story. Mm-hmm. If you look through, eh, these stories have been there. In s- most of these stories in the past, they did not attract readers. But we thought, as Infernal, we need to give these stories another look, eh? so then they can attract readers. Eh? So then we do geojournalism and use all the techniques I told you. So then you find scientists coming to our stories, you find youth coming to our stories because they have videos, they have photos, they have drawn imagery, and you find water diplomats. Because most of the stories, we target the water diplomats, the high-level guys, eh? so then they can know what is happening on the ground. Eh? But these, the long-form stories that we do attract these guys. They read, they go home their homes, they read from home, they go back to office, they read again, because these are long-form stories. Eh? These stories are interesting, and I've seen some of them. And I've also seen that you guys have been winning awards. Some of your journalists have been winning awards under your projects. What is that one story, or two stories probably, because there are very many, that have really put you out there on the international scene and you're really proud of and probably has made a change in the climate change scenery? I'm going to tell you about Sucked Dry. We've been winning awards and, uh, you know, because we did that project, the Sucked Dry, the one I told you, we brought together journalists, worked on land grabs in the region, we used data generated by Land Matrix, an organization that tracks land grabs in the whole world. It's based in South Africa and we visualized all the data. We worked with these guys, they published stories in their media houses in the region because they wanted these stories to reach to the common man. We put these stories together and formed Sucked Dry. You can check it out on internet. Very good project has all the visualizations I told you. It has all the techniques. For me, we were able to bring out what people did not know. We were able to analyze what happens to people on ground when foreign investors come from different countries and grab land in South, South Sudan. In foreign investors came, grabbed land. And remember, grabbing land does not mean you take it illegally. You can buy it and take it, eh? but in a big chunk of land. Eh? So then you can work, some of these investors can work with governments, they work with different organizations and take big chunks of land. Eh? So then they don't steal it. Land grabbing does not mean stealing it. Eh? No. But when they take these chunks of land, they displace communities, they grow what they're growing, they take out profits. And so we are able to bring out all this. For example, in DR Congo, we are able to bring out what happens when companies come from the, the eastern world and go log trees, cut down trees, uh, mine minerals. What happens to the local communities, the indigenous communities, the Batwa? Where do they live? We realize that they come back and work on the farm established on their farm lands, eh? pieces of land that they once owned, and they become you can say like slaves on that land. It originally belonged to them, but again they are now working there. They are struggling to survive. They cannot take their kids to school. You know, these are the issues that we brought out. Yeah, I can add uh, on the awards. So we track both the awards that the journalists we support win and also the ones that are in Funile. Mm projects win. So I think more than 30 journalists now have won awards uh, for their stories, which we have edited, we have mentored them to produce, we have worked with them on the data visualizations. Uh, So every story takes even up to a year to produce with a lot of mentorship and support. And they have been winning awards. And we feel like this inspires them to do more environmental reporting. Uh, we are trying to make environmental reporting something which can be personally beneficial for the journalists because we feel like that's the way that we can have an impact in this sector. 
Um, but then two of the other projects that I would highlight, one of them is called Wild Eye. And this is a, a project that we partnered with Oxpeckers, Investigative Environmental Journalism in South Africa, to investigate wildlife crime um, now in eight countries in Eastern Africa. So we initially did a project called Pandemic Poachers during the lockdown, looking at um, looking at data both from the national authorities and from the environmental investigative agency on how uh, COVID-19 was affecting wildlife trafficking and poaching. And we found that even though the wildlife trafficking internationally had seemed to slow down, mostly because of the airport closures, the local poaching had increased because of poverty. So this inspired us now to work with ox pickers and say, okay, how can we get this data um, on a really comprehensive level from authorities. So we trained data wranglers from our network and they went to different authorities in their countries, the courts, the wildlife um, ministries, trying to get this data. So looking at arrests, seizures, convictions, prosecutions of wildlife crime. So even after the poacher or whoever is arrested, what happens in the courts? Are these people actually prosecuted? If they're prosecuted, are they prosecuted to the level that the, the law says that they should be prosecuted? And overall, of course, uh, prosecutions are a bit lacking compared to the arrests, but they have been improving over the years in Eastern Africa. It has been quite challenging to get the data from a lot of the countries, including uh, Burundi, DRC, and Ethiopia. It's been quite challenging due to press freedom issues. Uh, even working through local journalists who have the contacts and the connections, it's still challenging. But we are still trying. Uh, we are proud that we are able to get a lot of data from Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, Rwanda, South Sudan, and a little bit from DRC, but we are still trying to get more. Uh, you can find all of this data on an interactive map called WildEye, and we also worked with the journalists to produce about 12 investigations based on, based on that data. Uh, we have tried to track some of the impacts. Of course, it's hard to know whether how a story leads to an impact, but we believe that by increasing the awareness, if something happens, maybe your story was part of what contributed to that impact. And actually, after uh, the story from DRC was published, uh, which was looking at how there are a lot of stockpiles of ivory in DRC, which then get back into the black market for one reason or another. And there's a bit of decentralization in the management of these illegal wildlife stocks. After that story was published, a couple of weeks later, the uh, US, I think, I believe it was the US Department of State, I have to fact check that, but uh, the US actually put on its list several of the officials from some of the Congolese institutes that are in charge of conservation of nature. Mm, it called them out for corruption and I think put them on um, a list where they were not eligible for visas. So we don't know whether that story had any linkage, but it was quite related to what actually happened. So that's just an example of some of the impacts that we see mm. From one, stories. One, what, what you may need to underline is that when we do these stories, eh, when journalists do these stories, eh, they kind of become like basis, like the foundation for other stories. Eh? Yeah, so we do investigate these stories, but later you find other media houses, these countries writing because they have seen us write these stories. So then we work, we give them tips, they investigate, they do these stories. And you realize these stories originated from the idea that we had, which is very good. We want, we, our, our, our aim is to make sure that these stories go out. We don't aim at gaining bylines on these stories, but making sure that we, ha our stories have an effect, an 
an impact on the on the community. We want more journalists writing these drugs and we want more media houses. This is why we support journalists, we support media houses to write these stories. Probably another project we may need to underline is uh, the project that looked at why lakes in the East Africa were shrinking. And this has been a very big project. We were nominated for the Climate Now Awards. We didn't get, but we reached there in the USA. Yeah, I mean, it's a very big project. We worked with almost a dozen journalists in, the, in Eastern Africa, in countries like Uganda, Tanzania, Kenya, and Rwanda, and we tracked why these lakes were shrinking. Yeah? And we found there are different reasons why these lakes are shrinking. We looked at different lakes. For example, in Uganda, we looked at Lake Wamara. We looked at uh, Lake Nachifare. We wanted to find out why these lakes were shrinking. We found one reason was climate change. Yeah? Because of climate change, evaporation, you know, stuff like that. But also we found uh, reasons like, you know, flooding. These lakes flood, not because there's a lot of water, but because of poor farming around close to these lakes sanitation and you have all rocks and stuff like that in these lakes and they look like they have a lot of water in actual sense they do not have water and we found a very big many impacts on communities that originally depended on these lakes you know like fish disappearing what does it mean to the communities that live across these lakes eh? that's very interesting the fact that you bring journalists together and make sure that you're collaborating it's also a kind of new way to to approach journalism because now we're moving away from you know traditional media and you know there's less people watching you know the news and yeah. I, I think that also used to put a lot of pressure on journalists to do breaking stories around you know even climate change stories that needed to take a bit of time but mm. as we speak about you know approaching this kind of new journalism that takes a while how do you guys make money because it, it would take a while for you to to actually you know get the money in make sure that you're finding all these journalists to do their stories you know giving them the grants and as you speak i'm going to be you know taking notes <laughs> so we we are not the media house we are actually an ngo that does media development yeah so we do not compete with media houses on stories like we want to do stories and compete with different media houses in the country or in the region but we are out there to support journalists and there are so many other guys who are out there to support us to support journalists so if you see most of the grants we have we sub grant organizations give us grants so we sub grant and give to journalists we work with there are other several other ways that we get some money that support us yeah uh, yeah so like fred said we work with foundations that align with our goals. So our main funders are JRS Biodiversity Foundation. Um, there is a lot of talk about climate change, but not so much about the biodiversity crisis, which is really at the same level of the climate crisis and needs a lot more attention. So we are working with JRS Biodiversity Foundation and also partnering with some of the scientists that JRS supports under its various programs. Uh, so, and the other main funder we have is IHE Delft, the Institute of Water Education, and they're also trying to uh, increase awareness of the water science that they support. So, if it's both of these organizations, we've come in as like a link between the scientists mm. and then the communities and the, the policy makers. Mm. Both of those organizations found that they were supporting a lot of amazing science, a lot of data collection, but it wasn't actually reaching awareness. So, that's how we have come in, and that's also how we have started a co production program, a fellowship program uh, that we are piloting right now for 18 
scientists and journalists where they are working in pairs. So even the scientist is learning how to communicate, how to make write a tweet, how to write a press release, how to make a short podcast. And it is challenging. Most of the scientists want to remain in the science world. It's hard for them to communicate to the public. But by matching them with a journalist for nine months, going through trainings, producing stories, producing videos, producing podcasts, we hope to bring in more scientists into the communication space. So those are our two main funders. And then uh, we have many small, smaller grants and projects that we work on. Earth Journalism Network has been one of our biggest supporters over the years since the beginning, and we have worked on so many either six-month or one-year projects with them, especially around wildlife conservation and wildlife trafficking. Yeah. yeah. But of course, funding is a challenge, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you think about in-depth stories, like you said, not chasing after the daily story, but doing something which is really impactful. And I think this is something that most nonprofit newsrooms or media development organizations or hybrids like we are kind of a hybrid now are trying to are really struggling with there needs to be more funding whether it is from foundations the international community governments there just needs to be new ways for really non-profit investigative platforms to make money because these stories are expensive going out to rural areas spending weeks there doing investigations going to authorities multiple times trying to get data these require a lot of money and even doing the work of doing the analysis doing something that is beyond just the normal everyday story it takes a lot of money and it's something that needs a lot of attention Uh, We are happy that we are now on the board of the Environmental Investigative Forum, which is bringing together different uh, investigative environmental journalism platforms in different areas of the world and trying to establish uh, a common advocacy platform that we can use even when we go to conferences like COP. How can we advocate as the media community for more funding to be put into journalism and and into media? This is the only way that we are going to increase the awareness of people about environment and actually lead to the sustainability. That's very interesting. If you are listening this far, thank you so much for sticking to The Last Drop Africa. My name is Bella and I'm here with Fred Mujira and Annika McGuinness of the Infernile and Water Journalists Africa. Now, one more question I have is, how do you protect your journalists? Because some of this work is a bit dangerous and, you know, if they're investigating wildlife crimes and all these other things, then there must be a bit of risk. So what are you doing in order to make sure that they are in line or being protected? It's a big challenge that we face. One thing you may underline is that truth will set you free. So the first thing we do is to make sure these guys write the right stuff and it is backed by facts. So then no one would question. But there are some people who go ahead and question them. So then we have had instances where we let journalists have no bylines on stories. Eh? Because like I told you, the aim is to have these stories out there so then they can cause an impact. It's not just to have a byline. So we have worked with journalists sometimes who say, no, I, I may be threatened if I have my byline on this story. So we let them not have bylines. Eh? And also, we regularly train these guys. Eh? We train them in you know safety, how they can handle themselves while in the field, what they should do to the sources, to kind of put sources in in a situation where they are threatened. eh? So then we find that some have been threatened and have had challenges, others have gone out of of their countries, but there are a few cases.
Yeah, and something else to highlight, um, collaborative reporting actually helps increase the safety of journalists because just consider if you're doing a really sensitive story and you're working with maybe NTV, New Vision, Daily Monitor, and KFM, and you're all putting out the same information across different platforms, and there's something that someone maybe wants to target you, who will they target if you all publish on the same day, maybe? So we feel like collaborative reporting, whether it's within the country or it's outside of the country, cross-border will really help. And sometimes as Infonile, we also come in as that collaborator, because all of our stories are published in the journalist local media, but also on Infonile, also within our cross-border stories we kind of provide maybe that extra layer of protection. And we have had cases where journalists have been jailed and we have come in to put out a statement and then also work with our local coordinators in the country to go and visit, to see what kind of support they can provide. Um, but definitely it is a big challenge and we are still trying to improve our internal systems of how we can really support journalists. And in, in some cases we've actually killed stories. We have had stories, we have given half of the funds, journalists has gone to the field and then something has happened that has made them unable to publish the story. And safety of our journalists is the most important, not publishing of that particular story. If the journalist is not alive, then there are no more stories that he or she can do. So in the end, sometimes it's okay to kill a story or to wait on it for the right time to be able to publish or maybe try to realign the angle. It is okay. This is this is wisdom you guys are spewing. Okay, one more question. <laughs> you talked about the flip-floppy earlier when oh, we were yeah. you know, just starting <laughs> before the podcast. Um, how did you guys come up with that and what activity took place and what were you aiming to achieve? Yeah, Flip Floppy was really an interesting project. We had someone working for us. Uh, she's an American journalist who was living in Uganda at the time called Megan Lee. She is an amazing video journalist, documentarian. Uh, she's now left Uganda, but she was working with us and she had connections with the Flip Floppy, which is an advocacy group promoting the circular economy in East Africa. So they are trying to get away from using single-use plastics uh, and really create awareness about the harms of plastics and the alternatives and also how plastics can be recycled. A very innovative advocacy group that does a lot of community engagements, working with artists, musicians, youth, policymakers. They are really good at bringing people together, bringing stakeholders together. So they had produced a boat made out of recycled plastic called the Flip Floppy. It's this very colorful boat and they were sailing it around Lake Victoria for one month, having events at the different landing sites in Uganda, Kenya, and Tanzania. So Megan joined the Flip Floppy team. She spent about a month on the boat, uh, having a lot of adventures, being on the seas in Lake Victoria is not easy. I think at one point they even had a hole in the boat and had to like spend one night bailing out the water. But she met so many amazing people who are in this space of fighting plastic pollution. And on that boat was uh, a researcher from Tanzania named Bahati Mayoma, and he was doing the first surface to deep water study of microplastics. These microplastics, you'd think they come from maybe like Renzori bottles, but they actually come from products that we use every day like shampoo, even from washing clothes, small little plastics drain out into the waterways and they end up in the lake. And then those plastics are ingested by fish. So there's also been another study, I think that showed that one in five fish has plastic in it and we are consuming this plastic. So by bringing on board that scientist, they were also supporting more research. Is this plastic actually reaching the bottom of the lake? Is it everywhere in the lake? Uh, and we have since worked with Bahati to share some of his findings with our network of journalists through our Nile Well platform where we have 
regular events that bring scientists on board. So Megan produced a documentary from that expedition and it was how we actually um, inaugurated our model of community exhibitions. So after she produced this documentary, we held several screenings in Kenya, in Uganda, in a couple of different communities, just trying to increase awareness. We have done this long-term project working with an activist group. How can we now reach the communities? Uh, and since then, we have been doing community exhibitions, bringing especially our visual stories back to different communities, the communities where they were reported, giving back photos to the people who were photographed, who usually never see their photos, especially if they come from a community that is low resource. So actually giving them a copy of their photo and talking with the local policymakers, engaging them so that they lead events around the exhibitions, talking about the issue of climate change or whatever we are showcasing. We have done those in Karamoja, in Rusinga Island in Kenya, and also in at Ripon landing site in Uganda. Yeah, because we believe that stories do not live in media houses, like on TV or in newspaper. They live in communities where they are made. So then we take these stories back. People who are in these stories, the sources, the people we photograph feel very happy when they see themselves in these stories. Eh? When we went back, people would say, we thought you were spies, but now we can tell you more stories. Please come, we give you more mm. stories. Eh? Yeah, it's an amazing way of doing things. Yeah. And the last thing about the flip floppy is it kind of inaugurated how we work with activists. So we are trying to see how we can bring together different groups into this space. We have a network of journalists now and we have a big network. How can we now link these journalists, first of all, to scientists, that's one project, but also now to activists. These are an, This is another group which is having a huge impact in the environmental space. Youth who are online, they have... Um, maybe a Twitter account where they are putting out a lot of information and influencing a lot of people. But are they putting out the right information? We have a big issue with misinformation and disinformation now. So if our journalists are producing quality work based on data and based on science, how can we link them to activists to help communicate this information? and do campaigns around this information. So we are launching an activist program actually tomorrow uh, where we'll be training 30 activists from the Nile Basin and linking them with our journalists to do campaigns around stories and we'll see how it goes. Um, but the Flip Floppy was really the inspiration for that program. Thank you so much for the good work that you do. In case you have any last remarks to the young journalists out there, mm. to the media houses, to the people who are actually coming up with organizations that are kind of doing the same thing but also fighting the issue of climate change, please do give those final remarks. Mine, mine is that when we do these studies, what do we aim at? We aim at communities taking scientific decisions to develop so then they are not basing on politicians who may give them stuff that is not based on science so we make we make sure we have journalists write stories based on what they got from scientists so then they help communities take scientific decisions and then we see development we see them not having diseases my advice to the young journalists try as hard as possible to work with the scientific world the scientists because they are the guys who have gone to the field they research they have info when we rely on politicians eh, then we give out stuff that is not based on science and remember you can have propaganda in what politicians tell you and that stuff may not help your community develop but also specialize you can never write everything there's a lot of stuff to write sports entertainment and you know stuff like that but politics find what you like and do that as hard as possible from the university first year write what you like 
guys like technology. I've seen journalists, journalists come to me and ask me, I've just completed university, what should I do? I tell them, what do you like? And then say, I like this stuff, I like knowledge, I like climate change. I say, go for it, write. And later, after 10 years, 15 years, they become experts in that field. And you're like, aha, this guy has done it. I think my last words, first of all, would be a promotion. You should for any journalists who are out there or scientists to join our Niowell platform. That's how they can stay in touch with us and the different opportunities that we have. That is Niowell, as in the waterwell.org. And you can also get in touch with us through our WhatsApp chatbot. This is where we have a lot of information, our stories, our data opportunities, and mobile magazines at plus one two zero two seven seven three seven six three two. So that is for anyone interested. But my advice for young people is to really take the time and challenge yourself. Challenge yourself to tell different stories. There's a lot of talk, encouragement to become an influencer, to get followers, but there's not so much now in really challenging yourself to tell investigative stories, stories which go beyond the norm, which go beyond like that one tweet. Sitting down and really analyzing the data, trying to get as many sources as possible, trying to question what sources are telling you, uh, and really interrogating what is happening in the space of environment or conservation, degradation, because this is the world that the youth are going to live in. If it's not us to really ask the policymakers, ask the companies, ask the communities, how are we going to reach to these goals that we want to achieve as the world and what is not being done? If it's not us to do the work, then who's going to do it? So I really urge young people to challenge yourself, to put in the time, to do the work. We can do it, but only really if we work together. And that's the other thing. As journalists, we usually want our own byline. We want to work alone, but collaborations have a huge impact. As Infona, we are also open to any new collaborations with organizations and institutions. We don't need to have that Infonile alone byline. Actually, we prefer when it isn't done in collaboration with other institutions. So don't hesitate to seek out people to work with, uh, to reach out to us. We are also here in terms of mentorship and other ways that we could support young people. We can do this. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for being here as well and taking off the time. If you're listening in, this is the last drop, Africa, and we are very glad to have hosted the best of the best, and you've had it from the best of the best, of course. That is Fred Majira and Annika McGuinness here at Water Journalists Africa and InfoNile. Now, I will let you go, but just remember, young people out there and whoever is listening in, please do challenge yourself. And this podcast has been supported by Africa No Filter and the MasterCard Foundation. Until next time, bye-bye.